Good morning, everybody. Uh, we have been reading 2 Corinthians together this fall. It is a letter uh, that the Apostle Paul wrote because something uh, bad had happened between himself and the church that he founded in Corinth. Uh, it is uh, an emotionally complex letter. It seeks restoration and reconciliation with his friends uh, while at the same time uh, trying to answer lingering and really hurtful criticisms about his leadership. So we're going to pick up uh, where we left off last week. I will uh, start reading from the second half of verse 16 in chapter 2. It's printed in the order of worship and you can follow along there. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God we speak in Christ. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us. But our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me uh, pray for us. Father, we ask uh, that what we just sang together, we would experience to be true. That you would, by your Holy Spirit, attend to us. That, that through this word um, that we've read and heard, you would visit us. That you would meet us in wherever we are, in ever, whatever places we find ourselves this morning. Those of us who are ready to hear from you and those of us who aren't those of us who feel close to you and those of us who don't, those of us who have faith, those of us who don't, those of us who aren't sure, meet all of us and show us your grace and your truth in Jesus and change us by it. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, uh, Facebook and Instagram were in the news last week. They were uh, the subject of a Senate hearing and their effects on uh, the culture and on mental health. I'm sure some of you uh, followed along with that news story. Uh, and I don't know if that Senate hearing was the inspiration uh, for something that I read list last week, but some random person on the internet wrote about Instagram. And what this person wrote kind of uh, struck me and has stuck with me. Uh, this was the sentence. I missed when Instagram was mad unhinged and people would just post their lunch on their main feed. That's the sentence. That is a uh, very specific and a very modern lament. I know some of you know exactly what it means, but if you don't, it's, it's about being sad that a social media platform that used to be fun has been largely taken over um, by the ubiquitous presence of highly curated and immaculately presented accounts of influencers. Accounts that traffic in lifestyle self-promotion in order to sell stuff. 
And I guess that that uh, mildly humorous lament stuck out to me because uh, it reminded me of another more serious lament uh, that one of you sent me back in March. It was a lament that also centered on online culture and the nature of influencers. Lee Stein uh, wrote it for the New York Times, and it's called The Empty Religions of Instagram. And here is what she wrote. I have hardly prayed to God since I was a teenager. But the pandemic has cracked open inside me a profound yearning for reverence, humility, and awe. I have an overdraft on my outrage account. I want moral authority from someone who isn't shilling a memoir or calling out her enemies on social media for clout. There is a chasm between the vast scope of our needs and what influencers can provide. They aren't challenging us to ask the fundamental questions. Why are we here? Why do we suffer? What should we believe in beyond the limits of our own puny selfhood? So regardless of uh, our use of social media or the ins and outs of marketing on social media, I think those are questions that we can all relate to. They are the fundamental questions. And where are we looking for the answers to those questions? And should we trust and can we trust the people who are answering those questions for us with the loudest voices? Where are we going to find life and who are we going to listen to to find life? Well, these are the things that Paul writes about in the part of the letter that we just read uh, together in this deeply personal response to some deeply personal criticisms. He points his friends and he points us to the place where life is actually found. So the passage that we just read starts with a question, who is sufficient for these things? And, you know, of course, on the one hand, it's really obvious why Paul asked that question. If you were here last week, you might remember um, that he has, just in the lines before this, described uh, the Christian life and described his own uh, particular life as an apostle as being part of this beautiful unfolding story of God reconciling the whole world to himself in Jesus. And he has just said that our lives uh, carry out the lingering scent of Jesus' life. We, wherever we go, carry the lingering scent of Jesus' life and, and that simply living as followers of Jesus makes the good news of Jesus known. And to some people around us, it's deeply threatening and deeply challenging. And to others around us, it is life-giving and filled with comfort. So, of course, he asked, who in the world is sufficient for these things? Who is sufficient for this life? And nobody is really, not on their own, and that's the point. But Paul, you know, being Paul, doesn't answer the question. Instead, what he does is he just lets it hang in the air for a bit, and he starts talking about himself, which is a clue, I think, that that question isn't just a rhetorical flourish. I think it's a deeply personal question. I think it's one that has been aimed at Paul, as in, Paul, are you really sufficient for these things? Because we don't think you are. 
Now, I don't know uh, anyone who really likes uh, being put in the, def the position of defending themselves. I mean, I, I know people who are really good at defending themselves, and I know people who are really bad at defending themselves, but I don't think anyone wakes up in the morning thinking, hey, you know what I would like to do today? I would like to be really defensive and seem really touchy uh, and wound up. You know, that's the worst. Nobody likes that, and neither does the Apostle Paul, and he says that a bunch of times in this letter that he doesn't like being this way. But he does do it. He does defend himself because he believes that the good of those people in the church that he founded is being threatened, that they are being threatened. So one of the problems when we ha that we have uh, when we read this letter is that we don't know precisely what the detractors were saying against them because we don't have a letter from them. They're not in the room so we do our best to infer it from what he says, from what Paul says, and from what we know about culture at the time. And so this is how Paul begins defending himself. He starts, we, we're not like so many peddlers of God's word. Now that word that's translated as peddler had a negative connotation in the first century. It was used for shady merchants who did stuff like cutting the wine that they sold with water or putting uh, their thumb on the scales when they weighed out the grain. That word was also used uh, for a class of popular teachers and speakers who traveled around uh, the ancient world and taught people that were usually supported by a wealthy patron who backed them. They were clever, they were flashy, they were well-spoken, but their reasoning didn't always hold up under examination. We called them the sophists, and that's why in the modern world, when we say someone is engaging in sophistry, it's not a good thing. Paul's point in using that word is simply to paint a contrast. And what he says by way of contrast is really the whole of his self-defense in a nutshell, and it has three parts to it. First, he says, he is sincere. And he comes back to that again and again and again. He is sincere. He is open-handed. He has nothing at all to hide. And he is glad to always explain anything that he has said or done or written. Second, he says he is commissioned by God, sent by God. There is no wealthy patron who sent him. There is no shadow supporter, no guy behind the guy. It's just God who met him on a dusty road outside of Damascus a long time ago and gave him a new life and told him to go, and so he went. And lastly, all that he does, he says, he does in the sight of God. In other words, Paul actually believes that all of his life is lived out in the presence of God, Coram Deo, as the theologians would later call it. You know, sometimes we say to one another, and in particular, I think sometimes we say this to our kids, you have to figure out who you're going to be when no one is watching. And you know, there is a certain wisdom to that. It's about character formation. You're, you need to be who you're going to be when you're not performing. But I want to say that the Christian faith is pretty stubborn about not pretending that there's ever a time <laughs> when no one is watching. 
I mean, if God is who he says he is, then that time doesn't exist, not in your life and not in mine. And I know, believe me, I know, there is a way to practice God's presence. There's a way to practice God's gaze over our life grudgingly, you know, like it's an intrusion. I know that because I experience it. And I just want to say that the times in my life when I feel that, when I feel like his gaze uh, is an intrusion, are directly correspondent to those times in my life where I'm not loving him (laughs) and I'm not loving my neighbors and my friends and my family and the people around me. And that makes sense. I don't want anyone to look at me when that's happening. It makes me think of Luke 5, you know, when Peter sees Jesus for the very first time and he can't take it. And he just falls down on his faith and he just begs Jesus to leave. He just says, please, please, Jesus, just get away from me. You remember what Jesus said in response? He says, Peter, don't be afraid. Which is really, honestly, just about the last thing I'm sure Peter ever expected to hear. And I think at least part of the reason that Jesus says that is because it is far better for people like you and me to be exactly who we really are, mindful of the presence of God, than for people like us to be exactly who we really are in a world all by ourselves, absent of anything more powerful to act in our own lives than just our foolishness. To borrow uh, language from Lee Stein again, I think it's better for us to be exactly who we are in the gaze of God than it is for us to be exactly who we are absent of anything beyond the limits of our own puny selfhood. That's a scary place to be. I mean, I mean, Jesus knows that Peter is a clown, <laughs> Right? But if Peter can keep looking at Jesus, if he can keep practicing Jesus' gaze and presence in his life, then eventually Peter is going to see grace and he's going to see mercy. He's going to see forgiveness and he's going to see the power to change. And that is way better for Peter. And it's way better for people like us too. Maturity in our faith looks like practicing and habituating the presence and gaze of God. Like Psalm 56 puts, puts it, like walking before God in the light of life. So Paul defends himself. Listen, I'm sincere and God has sent me and everything I do, I do mindful of his gaze over me. He defends himself and as soon as he does it, as soon as he does it, right there in verse 3, he immediately questions the need for doing it and he questions it out loud. You can hear the conflict in his words. Am I beginning to commend myself again? Do you really need letters from us or from you? Do you really need letters of commendation like other people do? Do you really need them? I mean, we use letters of recommendation a lot in our culture. You know, we check references, we, we write and we receive letters commending people to certain things. They, they were even more prevalent in ancient cultures because it was harder to get information about people than it is now. Paul himself commends people to others all of the time in his letters. The problem is not the practice 
of letters of commendation. The point is that Paul cannot imagine that he has to get back to such things with his friends. He founded that church. He bled and sweat and cried and laughed with them for a year and a half. He didn't come with any letters, and they didn't ask him for any letters. It pains him to think that he's going to have to go back to square one with them, but that's where they are. And we know from later in the letter that this had been one of the accusations that was leveled against Paul. He did not come recommended. He did not come recommended. Unlike the people who were making the accusations. The highly curated and beautifully immaculate influencers. The ones who had come with glowing recommendations and wealthy patrons backing them. The influencers who had all of the right spiritual fits, all of the right people behind them, the important people behind them, the ones with the beautiful voices. So we'll see who they are more clearly in the later chapters of the letter, but for now it's important to know that this is what they've been saying. They look at Paul and they say, Paul, you, you don't really measure up. You've got too much suffering and you've got too much weakness and you've got too much trouble. You don't cut that great of a figure, Paul. You don't look good. And clearly some of his friends in that church are being swayed. And you know what? It is hard not to be swayed. It is hard not to be swayed by the clever and the loud and the flashy, beautiful voices that seem to be backed by the holders of power and influence and wealth. Paul is exactly the opposite of that. And this letter is a sustained plea to allow our life, for you and me, to allow our lives and our faith to be shaped and ordered by a whole different set of values. I mean, power, Wealth, influence, prestige, these are really intoxicating things. And the promises that they make, they sound really, really, really good. Man, you, you could have admiration and you could have security and you could have a legacy. But those things are wildly elusive. And they go away from us as quickly as they come to us. And they do not have the power to deliver those promises. But Jesus... Jesus reconciles sinful people like you and me and the whole broken world to God. <laughs> That's what he does, and that is the good news. And like Paul wrote back in chapter one of this letter, the good news of Jesus is the yes to every promise that God has ever made. Promises of forgiveness and life and meaning and purpose. All of the big fundamental questions begin to have their answer in Jesus. All of the promises of God find their yes in him. And church, here is the scandal. <laughs> okay, here is the scandal that gives birth to the keeping of every one of those promises. Here is the genesis of the keeping of every one of those promises. It is the suffering and death of Jesus. <laughs> the heart of our faith is the troublesome, scandalous weakness of a cross. That's at the heart of everything. And so it is in our weakness 
And it is in our suffering and in our trouble where power and glory and grace are most clearly seen. Because it is in our weakness and in our trouble and in our suffering when we don't look great that we carry the lingering scent of Jesus' life. The lingering scent of Jesus' weakness and trouble given for the good of the world. And that's how Paul lived. And that's what he told his friends at Corinth when he first came to them and they believed it. And their lives changed forever. (laughs) And all kinds of just unbelievable stuff started happening. Enemies became friends in that community and the poor began to be looked at and taken care of and fed and the people who were ostracized and the people on the margins of society were brought into the very center of a new family. All of these things happened. You know, and so Paul says, look, if you need a letter, I mean, if anyone needs a letter, if anyone wants a letter about me, then I guess it's you. You guys are, are my letter of recommendation. You're written by Christ. You're written on our hearts, not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. You can be our letter. You can be our commendation. People can read you and know you. Everything has changed. I think that is a wildly open-hearted and beautiful thing. Paul will stake it all. He will stake it all. His reputation, his credentials, the validity of his calling, he will stake it all on the changed lives of the people that he loves. He will stake the validity of his entire life on the changed lives of those people who are in that very moment wondering if they even want to keep on keeping on with him. doesn't even matter. And I think you could only say something like that if you were really confident that the change that had taken place in their lives, that the new family that had formed across all kinds of formerly uncrossable lines wasn't really about you at all. I think you'd only say something that open-hearted if you'd come to the place where you realize that you had just really been along for the ride. I don't think you'd ever say anything like that if you hadn't come to believe that in and of yourself you were wholly inadequate to make things like change lives ever happen. Which is, of course, precisely what Paul says. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. And lo and behold, he finally gets around to answering the question that he asked. You remember who is sufficient for these things? Paul says, not me, that's for sure. Not that we are sufficient to claim anything as coming from us. Not one thing. But our sufficiency is from God who made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. So we'll talk more about what exactly Paul means by that letter and spirit stuff next week. But for now, let me just say that Paul includes himself here in a long, long, long line of people in scripture who are wholly inadequate and who are wholly unable on their own. 
but who find themselves made adequate and made able by the forgiving love and empowering grace of the Spirit who sweeps them up and takes them into this ride, who brings them into the heart of the true story of the world and does all kinds of surprising and unlikely things through them. Paul joins people like Moses and Hannah and Gideon and Mary of Nazareth and Peter and people like you and me too. Because by the Spirit of God, through faith in Jesus, people like us are made useful for the good of the world. Let me pray for us. Father, give us the wisdom and the courage, probably, that it needs to listen to the right voices. To seek out and to hear the right voices as we ask the fundamental questions of life, like what are we doing here? (laughs) And help us to see and to believe that all of those questions begin to find their answer in beautiful promises that you have made through Jesus. Help us to cling to faith in him so that we would grow up in our faith and so that we could uh, be people through whom you love this broken world. And we prayed in Christ's name. Amen.